Hey there, and welcome to Inside Intercom. Today's guest comes to us all the way from Shanghai. That's designer, artist, and educator, Rune Madsen. Sitting at the intersection of all three of Rune's trades are design systems, something we've spoken a lot about on this show previously, and something Rune's written about extensively and even helped clients create. A former creative director at O'Reilly Media and developer at the New York Times, Rune now teaches on the topic at NYU's Shanghai program. But getting a little more specific for a moment, after catching a keynote Rune gave last year, the user experience of design systems, we knew we had to get him on the show. His talk runs through not just the benefits of design systems, something that we hear discussed all the time, but also when it comes to how they're being applied today, the negative consequences that they can bring. Specifically, are we oversimplifying products in a way that benefits the builder and not the user? The case study throughout Rune's talk is Google's material design. And it just so happens that our host for this conversation, Intercom Director of Product Design, Emmett Connolly, contributed to Material Design's creation during his previous run at Google. In his chat with Emmett, Rune details the landscape of design systems today. We talk a lot about the benefits of organizing around a common system and a common visual language, which I think is great. But this prison that the design system becomes, I think, can be highly problematic. And I think we're seeing the effects on the web today and in products. Why, although design systems are such an old concept, they've risen to recent prominence. We have this explosion of digital products, which are all systems. We are forced to implement our designs and code. And naturally, our kind of workflows will move towards thinking about how to optimize that. And how the current state of design tooling fits in all this. We are bound to this waterfall process where designers work in one tool with one certain types of files. And then that has to go through this throwing over the wall to development. There is truly a different experience to be had if you unify or unite around one tool that both designers and programmers work in. If you like what you hear and want to check out more Inside Intercom episodes, you can subscribe to our show over at iTunes, wherever you go for podcasts today. While you're there, you may want to check out our episode with Emmett as the guest from last year, where we talk about how we built our own design system here at Intercom. It was actually our most popular episode from 2017. But now, let's hop in the studio, where we've got Emmett Connolly and Rune Madsen. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Rune, welcome to Inside Intercom. Thank you so much. Uh, Great to have you here. Uh, I've been looking forward to this chat for a little while now. I think there's a lot for us to get into. You know, your career seems to have touched on a lot of interesting topics, and and I feel like I would almost struggle to uh, summarize it. It's been so multifaceted (laughs) myself. So maybe I'll just leave that to you to give the, the short version for our listeners. Yeah, I guess when you look at my resume, it's kind of a mixed bag. But I guess the way I tend to describe myself is that I think about myself primarily as a designer who has ventured into these fields and now primarily use programming languages to do design. But so I also do writing and teaching as part of my practice. And I think, well, if you specifically talk about professional experience, I... I worked at the New York Times in the interactive news. I was a uh, creative director for our digital design team at O'Reilly Media. And then I moved full-time to teaching as a professor at NYU and now in NYU Shanghai. So yeah, a bunch of different things, working with digital products and kind of creative coding and uh, more of the arts 
and then lately writing this book called Programming Design Systems, which focuses on rules and systems in design and how we can replace the current tools like Photoshop and Illustrator and the manual tools with programming languages and systems. Yeah, really interesting. And I think lots for us to dig into there. So to take one of the things you said there as a jumping off point, I guess, is the topic of design systems, which obviously is very much at the intersection of design and the technical side of things, as you said. And in a keynote that you gave recently, I think you really explored your thesis around design systems, at least as it's evolving. Do you want to talk about that really quickly? Walk us through that. Uh, Yes, you bet. So I think the problem I have today is when I say design system, people immediately think about web components or digital products. So they see these landscapes of buttons and drop downs and so on. And this talk called the user experience of design systems was basically a way for me to look at all the things I've been arguing for for many years, like using systems and design and trying to find the negative consequences or the negative effects on that, primarily focused on Google's material design but more broadly on how these systems tend to impact users in negative ways and how we can look at other fields such as architecture and sociology to kind of draw conclusions on why the design systems sometimes tend to be bad for users. Watching the talk, I really got the impression that your definition of what a design system is is possibly broader and more holistic than what a lot of people working on web products or or mobile products today might be. Is is that fair? The way I think is that rules and systems have always been a part of the creative fields, whether you focus on art or whether you focus on design. And we can go all the... I actually just finished a chapter in my book called um, A Short History of Geometric Composition that traces back these systematic principles back to things like the illuminated manuscripts written in... Um, monasteries that used these very specific grid systems to guide the handwriting of the text. So those helper lines kind of became a system for structuring the creative process. And you can follow that all the way up into kind of the 60s and the golden age of advertising with the graphic standards manuals like the New York City subway and so on. And so my, yeah, I think my definition is like any systematic structure that kind of eases the burden of work on the designer and heightens the quality of the product. So yeah, I think when people say design systems today, they immediately think about these like material UI web components. But I do also in my teaching tend to take a step back and look at a broader piece of history and, and trace back kind of the trends we're seeing today with what happened before the computer. Given that these systems have been around for centuries in some form or another, why the hype? I mean, I think... Again, for people in the web product design realm, design systems for many maybe wasn't even a phrase that they had heard of two, three years ago, and now it's it's inescapable. Right. What, like, what happened there? Well, that's a great question. So the way I think about it is that to take a craftsman, like a printer in the 1940s and 50s, it was just such a manual process in a production of a static product. Like you make something, you print it, and you have a poster that looks exactly like the one that you drew. But still in that process, there was these rules and systems that were used, like grid systems and kind of on the letterpress, you had to arrange blocks in a certain way. 
So even back then, with such a minimal amount of technology, we had these systems that guided us. But then today, we have this explosion of digital products, which are all systems, and we're forced to think systematically about implementing our designs. So yeah, I think it's the fact that we can't really get around it today. Like We are forced to implement our designs and code, and naturally, our kind of workflows will move towards thinking about how to optimize that. And that's why I think like over the last three or four years, design systems has become such a trend. Right. I mean, I, I guess on the face of it as well, there's a lot of these great things that have team or business advantages. You know, you talked about the printer there being able to do something repeatable. There's potentially this great productivity upside to teams who are building using a design system. There's a consistency upside as well. But I guess, in a sense, maybe there's, you know, those uh, guardrails become restrictive, perhaps, and start, you know, the danger is always there that your your design becomes conformed by by those, and they become limitations. Is that fair? I think, I think that's super fair. So those two points is exactly what I say when I want to talk about the kind of great things about thinking in design systems. It's that you... You kind of ensure consistency across platforms or across products and you free up resources so designers can kind of focus on the things that matter and not redo the same button over and over. But then you end up in this world where, and we can, so in my talk, I reference this book, uh, Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott, mm -hmm. who looks at these kinds of organizational principles through history and says that there's two main problems with this, is that first of all, these systems tend to benefit the designer and not the user. So you end up with this really locked down system that completely ignores maybe domain-specific solutions. So an example of that is any redesign of a brand, someone comes in and says, we want to do a design system and look at all these crappy solutions that are on mobile and on web. We're just going to design it this way and completely ignoring why those decisions were made. Mm -hmm. So then this, the design systems becomes this prison that doesn't help either the mobile teams or the web teams to do a better job. Uh, and then his second point is that these systems also lead to a monoculture. And I think we can truly see that on the web today where like I personally think, or and many people have argued this, that every product looks the same or many, yeah. many products looks the same. And that's a part of a standardization of user interaction patterns and so on, which is beneficial. But it's also boiling down the idea of digital design or design systems into this idea of choosing the color of your rectangular button. And I think that is highly problematic. So that's actually why this talk came about is that I wanted to focus on these things because I think that we talk a lot about the benefits of organizing around a common system and a common visual language, which I think is great. But this prison that the design system becomes, I think, can be highly problematic. And I think we're seeing the effects on the web today and in products. Yeah. It strikes me that there's some kind of, I don't know, McLuhanism about our tools shaping the work that we do <laughs> and so on that like lies at the heart of this. And if you think about the design system as a tool quite broadly, maybe this has been a thing that has been going on for a long time. Like if you look at a lot of the digital tools that we have, whether through 
you know, from things like Mac Paint. If you look at Mac Paint, which was one of the first graphical paint tools on the Mac from, I guess, 1984, Photoshop mm-hmm. today and even Sketch doesn't look that different to it, right? And so there's mm-hmm. maybe some track that we're on where where a lot of the tools are suggesting that we design in the same way or produce output that, that works in the same way. And, and these systems are just an extension of that, you know? Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think like even Sketch and Photoshop, like they are tools that are basically unchanged since the birth of the computer and even before. Like the crop tool, the marquee tool, all of that is it's based on manual processes that came before the computer. And mm. I think the problem with our tools today is that we are bound to this waterfall process where designers work in one tool with one certain types of files. And then that has to go through this throwing over the wall to development. And they have to take that and work in another ecosystem. And I have just having worked in a team where all designers were coders can say that there is truly a different experience to be had if you kind of unify or unite around one tool that both designers and programmers work in. And I'm not saying that every designer should code. I actually don't believe in that at all. I think that's an argument for our our tools to change, as Mm. you're saying. And I just think about, like, my background was actually in Flash development when I I started programming. Right. And I think there's many bad things to say about that, and it gets a bad rep today. But Flash was a one-platform where you had both design assets and code in the same place. And it's really hard to point to places where you can do that today. It is obviously a much more complex ecosystem. And if you just look at the kind of ecosystem of JavaScript today, it's this explosion of complexity. But yeah, I really think there's both an argument for design education to change, which is why I teach. And there's an argument for tools to change to kind of bridge that gap that is between design and development. Yeah, I, I totally, strongly agree, actually. I um <laughs> kind of an OG Flash uh, guy myself. And um, cool. it, as a tool, it's really interesting to think that there were drawing tools in there, right, vector drawing tools, but there was also a timeline, but there was also this concept of components and objects baked into the tool, which very much doesn't exist in the mock-up tools, I think, that we have today. And yeah, I, I think, unfortunately, for for us, the output of Flash was a thing that, you know, the, the SWF file, the thing that actually uh, got consumed by users wasn't a great user experience, but it was an interesting tool that maybe we're slowly walking back towards today with yeah. things like um, InVision Studio, right, starting to really see, seem like it's baking in the concept of objects and so on into the into the design tool itself, as well as animation and so on. So one concern I have about all these new tools for designers that allow you to prototype interactive experience is that they're not production ready in the way that if you did something in Flash, you could put it directly somewhere and the user could interact with it. It is kind of layers we put on top of the manual design process to get as close to a coded product Mm. as possible. Like, first of all, time spent that should be spent on the production end of things. So we end up replicating all these interactive things, and then they need to be redone by programmers. So that is one concern, I think. 
Mm. Then I think there's no reason for that to happen, right? There's mm-hmm. no reason why we couldn't have something that actually outputs. And I, I know this is a complex problem, but there's no reason for now that the world has kind of centered around React components as a way to do web development. There is no reason why we can't have a prototyping tool and something like Sketch outputs React components. And that's actually one of the things I really I'm excited about talking about is the work that um, John Gold has been mm-hmm. doing in Airbnb to kind of reverse this process of going from sketch to code, and they are going from code to sketch. And that kind of frames the the conversation in a really interesting way because you kind of, as a design team, unite around components, they get implemented in code, and then from those you export your sticker sheet in sketch. And then designers work and can use Sketch however they want with these components, but if they figure out, oh, this needs to change or I don't have the ability to do this and this component, they need to have a conversation about which components needs to change. And I think that kind of structures the design process in a really nice way because what people tend to do now is that they work in Sketch and then it goes to code and then you have two sources of truth and the Sketch files get out of sync with the code and it's really problematic. And I think the other problematic thing about that is that we should stop trying to make the static sketch or Photoshop files kind of the, the source of truth when it comes to product design because mm-hmm. there are so many things, like you can't prototype a real product in that. You can't feel what it feels like. You can't swipe. You can't make do animation. You can't do motion. You can't do interactivity. You can't do dynamic data. So I was really interested in seeing this flipping up the process where you actually you unite around the code as the single source of truth, but you work really drastically to allow designers freedom in the design process. And I think there's much more room to do developments there. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that... All businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise. Old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. We're clearly at this almost 
juncture for in terms of design tools where you know we had photoshop which it's there in the name is a photo editing tool and a bunch of people <laughs> like almost hacked it uh, in order to produce uis and now we have more custom design tools for screen-based design things like sketch and, and envision studio and figma and and so on and right. there is a sense in the industry at least i get it of you know will one of these emerge victorious and gain some kind of virtuous net network effects from everybody adopting them. However, there is also this hint of, you know, rather than just a better Photoshop with maybe right. some some timelines added and a, a, a design system library baked in of coming at it almost from the other side, which is, yeah, can we can we build something that I guess you would say merges the function in some way of at least the front-end engineer and the designer, right? So coming at it from the other side, you know, we've kind of had this, should designers code? And I guess the answer is it depends and has always been that. (laughs) But like, should coders design? I, I think there's a similar lack of flexibility in any kind of engineer's IDE that I have seen where they're not really equipped to come from the other side of the development process and and uh, participate in the design process and and iterate in that way. Completely. Yeah, I think I, I might also be a bad person to ask because I don't really see the difference between designing and programming because that has been my tool my entire life and that's the way I design. But I think the problem maybe is that we think about it as replacing Photoshop. And one thing I always encourage my students I taught a class called Reinventing Production Tools in New York at uh, the Interactive Telecommunications Program at NYU um, last semester with uh, fellow Professor Patrick Hebron. And one thing that we really encourage students to do is to not think about replacing Photoshop, but thinking about much more domain-specific tools. So think about what is the best prototyping going directly to production environment for user interfaces on the web made in React, for example. Mm -hmm. And that's a much easier thing to make new advances in because you get out of this giant sphere of every designer using the design tool for everything. So one thing that I would really love to see is, yes, I would love to see development and IDEs change development environments and IDEs. But I think the way to do that is to focus much more specifically on like which domain are you changing here? And if it's web, you should build something that is specifically uh, made for web if it's mobile and should be for mobile and so on. And And it sounds like designing something that is production ready or almost production ready is a key part of that. Is that right? I think so. Yes. Or at least something where there is not a drastic reset of the product or where you don't have to start from scratch twice. I'm like, when you're talking, I'm thinking of things like, I don't know, D3.js, which is this like data visualization mm-hmm. thing, or possibly even processing, which I, I think came out of ITP, if, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Is, is that right? Uh, it came out of the MIT Media Lab, but oh, it's uh, widely adopted and the Processing Foundation is also partly run from ITP, so yes. Right. Are are those the types of tools or the hints of the types of tools that you're thinking of? Or can you give us any other examples that you think are, are successful? Um, well, I think processing is a great example as something that lowers the barrier drastically for designers to enter the domain of programming. 
So you can very easily get going without needing to install weird dependencies or development environments and so on. Um, so in that sense, it's really successful. And it's also a very specific domain-specific tool. It's something that most people do for screen-based digital art mm -hmm. and data visualization, p5.js, if you want to do it on the web. So in that sense, it's a really good example. In another sense, it's also still just programming. You have to write Java or JavaScript if it's P5. So in that sense, it doesn't really try to think of other kind of ways, Brett Victor-like ways of mm. interacting with systems and programming languages. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I my book is written with P5 as the example framework, and I've been teaching processing in P5 for many years. So I'm a big fan. The Brett Victor example with his learnable programming is an interesting one. And, and also his recent work on Dynamic Land, which you've probably seen. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your thoughts on that? Does that fit into your definition of a design system? I think it does. I mean, broadly speaking, yes. I think Dynamic Land looks really amazing. I haven't spent too much time on the documentation other than seeing a lot of people being very, very excited about it. Mm -hmm. um, so I can't speak specifically to it. But I, in general, Brett Victor's work, I think, is really interesting because although there haven't really been concrete examples of that in the wild, I think Chris Granger with Eve and so on has tried to adopt some of those principles. Um, but the ideas of let's find other ways to visualize logic and programmatic logic other than text input, I think it's really interesting because it opens up the door for systems and programming being something that is much broader adopted in organizations and by a much larger user base than just engineers. So mm -hmm. the programs I teach at NYU in New York and here in Shanghai, we're, um, first of all, 60% women and very multicultural. So it's something that we've been thinking about for a long, long time of how to kind of open up the user base uh, beyond the people who are just uh, normally interested in deeply technical subjects. Well, like, I think that maybe the most fascinating aspect of all of this is the kind of speculative future version. I'd love to take it back down to where we're at today and maybe get your thoughts, given that things like material design are still so broadly influential. I'd love to get your thoughts or suggestions, if you have any, on what direction you'd like to see it go in or advice that you'd like to give the team behind material design as they as they evolve it? <laughs> Great, that's a good question. I, first of all, I will say, I think that an enormous amount of effort was put into material design and I think it really kind of pushed the standards for what a design system is. So I, I'm really appreciative of that. I think the problem is that, so first of all, material design is a design system for Google and Google has a big, like their mission is obviously to make everything look like Google. Thus, they are promoting material design as a design system for everyone. But I spend a lot of time going through the rules and kind of understanding the principles of the system. And one big problem I have with material design is that it mixes these really great interaction patterns with the personal, very personal style of Google with the layering comes drop shadows and so on. And a good example of that is, so just in the, in the section about typography and kind of text, 
there is this really great example, which is basic graphic design knowledge or UX design knowledge, which is have proper contrast between your body text and the background. And no one would argue against that. Like, obviously, we shouldn't use light gray on a white background. And then right underneath that is something that says, I think it says, don't use colored text for your body text, which I guess for Google is not a part of their brand. But for any, like, are we now defining design as something where you can't use colors for your typography? There's millions of colors that work against white or black backgrounds. So stuff like that. And there's plenty of examples where, where that is really, that is problematic. Which almost um, points exactly to the limiting factor of some design systems where there are many subjective design decisions that you could take. And, and if if the system becomes too restrictive, it takes those choices away from you almost, right? Right. Yeah, and if I can make another point. So I think my other problem with design systems in the wild, having worked with a lot of companies to make them, and especially also material design, is that there is this tendency to think, oh, we're just going to make these components and it's going to work for everything. So you write this really neat small design systems and everything look great. And then you start using it and you realize, oh, in this case, I need my components to look like this. And in this other case, I need them to look like that. So you start expanding the rules. And it's something you see in graphic design education a lot, actually. You start to think about form and color, which is great. But then you have all these rules that kind of, end up being much more complex than actually serving the purpose of easing the burden of work. So you end up with this huge, thick Bible of material design rules that some of them are kind of competing against each other, and some of them are not really clear. And I guess it just speaks to the difficulty of actually having a design system in the wild, and over time and after years of use, that it still actually eases the burden of use and it actually still heightens the quality of the product. And I think that's really hard. I'm going to interject with a super late disclosure, which is before Intercom, I worked at uh, (laughs) Google and Android and (laughs) contributed a bit to material design. Having said all of that, I think uh, a lot of your criticism is your points are very well made. There does seem to be this, I guess, tension between a very broad general purpose system, almost, you know, one system to rule them all and something that is maybe like an in-house design system, for example, for a given company that's very specific and very tailored to them. And it almost reminds me of the point that you made just a few minutes ago, which is this differentiation between general purpose tools and specialist tools. And, And the more general purpose that you get, the less sense it makes to just be restrictive and and make specific rules that you expect everyone to adhere to because they're subjective. And and, and then the dangerous outcome for the end users there is this kind of design monoculture, I think, that you describe. Right. No, I think that's that's right. I haven't quite thought about it that way. But yes, I mean, that it definitely maps from tools to design systems that the broader you get, the harder it gets to... Or maybe the, the broader... The bigger the scope, the less effective mm-hmm. the system. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's something there. The le- the less like sharp or, uh, the points that it can make can be, and possibly as well the less opinionated it can or should be. To your point about that text color example, I I feel like I could uh, we could go on all day about this. <laughs> I wanted to to take some time before we wrap up 
to ask you just about your book. Uh, you're self-publishing it. You're releasing it one chapter at a time. You know, what, what, what are you hoping to achieve with the book? Why, why did you decide to tackle it in such a, an open manner? Um, good question. So I, I worked three and a half years for a publisher, O'Reilly Media, and publishers are great, but with that comes this idea that you're going to go away for a year, go in a dark room and write by yourself and then come out with a book and then that's it. You release it and it's done. And seeing other authors go through that process, I very early on decided that first of all, I'm going to open source the book. It's a Creative Commons share like license. So instructors and professors can just go online, grab whatever they want and use this as material in their classes. But then I want to release every chapter online at a time. So it's on programmingdesignsystems.com. There is a newsletter you can sign up to, which will get the links to chapters first. And so I have this readership that every time I write a new chapter will read my chapters, give me feedback and edits that I will incorporate and then share it to the broader world. So it's both like a way for me not to go insane when writing. And it's also a way for me to kind of make the writing of the book a marketing effort in itself. So now instead of having one book that gets promoted, I promote every chapter. And it's, yeah, it's a really great thing. I'm really happy to be doing it this way. And I'm really cl much closer in contact with my readership than I would have been if I just kind of do it the old fashioned way of going into a room and coming out with a book. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I've been following along and it's also an interesting way to read as well, you know, and, and possibly a more digestible way to uh, to read and, and have time to reflect on each part before plowing into the next one. So that is, did you say ProgrammingDesignSystems.com? It is, yes. Rune, where else can our listeners who I'm sure are going to want to uh, learn more about you and your work, where, where else can they find you online? Uh, I think I'm mostly active on Twitter as Rune Matson at Rune Madsen. And then my not updated website, <laughs> runemadsen.com, has much more of my artwork. I do a lot of like generative design and generative print work that is on the site. But yeah, Twitter is the best place to go. Great. Rune, thanks very much. This has been uh, fascinating for me, at least. I feel like uh, if we could continue the chat over a beer, I'd, I'd love to do it also. <laughs> uh, I really appreciate you coming on to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.